0: Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you so much for joining us on BC Podcast. Here's a message to encourage your heart this week. Well, good morning, and welcome to Bible Center. I am Pastor Mike, it's good to be with all of you. Happy Father's Day. Uh, That video just reminds me of my dad. Uh, He's someone who came to know Jesus when I was in sixth grade. And he went from someone who was a little rough around the edges to waking up every morning and reading his Bible. And I think that I'm here and a part of Bible Center as a pastor because he demonstrated the importance of getting up every day and spending time with God. And I started doing the same as I watched him. So I'm thankful for our dads, uh, thankful for our granddads. Uh, What a great day to celebrate you Uh, Dudes, as you walked in the door, hopefully you received one of these invitations. Uh, It's the size of just a business card. We're having a men's retreat this August, so August 18th, 19th, until Sunday morning. I would love for you to set this aside in your calendar to come and participate. We're going to spend time going through God's Word, talking about becoming men of courage. We're going to look at the life of Joshua and let it challenge us, Uh, We're going to have breakout sessions. We're going to have a speaker. We're going to have times where guys share some of their testimonies of how God's worked in their life. It's going to be a really good time to get to know some of the other guys here at Bible Center Church. So it's a great way to connect. Uh, You just have to go online, you register. And then after you register, it's really important to know, you also have to register for a place to stay. So there's $125 to register for the event. And then you have to click to the next thing to reserve a room. We have a hotel there at Summit Buchdahl waiting for us, but you have to type in the code that's given to you so that you can get one of those rooms. Otherwise, they think you're trying to take over a room, set aside just for us. Uh, as you go there, if you have questions about that, talk to me. Uh, if you're someone and life's a little tight right now, Summit Bookdale's only 45 minutes away. You could drive there, drive home in the evening, and drive back on Saturday morning. So we don't want you to miss out. Man, I look forward to seeing you there. This summer, We're talking about the transforming power of God, that God moves in the lives of individuals and transforms their hearts. Also in scripture, we see God moving at times to transform the lives of a people group, that he then transforms their mission and puts them on mission. This summer, we're looking at those three different areas. In June, we're exploring this idea of heart transformation. We've had some time to look at Joseph Last week, we spent time looking at David and the transformative power of the forgiveness of God in the life of a Christian. Today, we're going to look at a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. And we're going to learn today that God can transform the most prideful of hearts, even mine and even yours. A couple years ago, I went to my 25 year high school anniversary. Reunion, not an anniversary, reunion. And I sat down uh, beside this lady and I had walked in with a guy named Keith. Keith and I went to the the reunion together. And when I sat beside her, she said, "'Why in the world did you come with Keith?' Because even 25 years later, there were people all around our high school that just had these scars from bumping into Keith at some point during their high school career. Keith was maybe like a little Nebuchadnezzar at Hoover High School in 1992 in North Canton, Ohio. Uh, He was only about five foot four, but had a personality that was six foot 10. He was kind of like a Kevin Hart kind of personality. Super funny, aggressive, pretty much did whatever he wanted. I remember sitting, uh, we were at a study hall and there were hundreds of kids in the cafeteria. There was a light bulb, just one of those long light bulbs and it burned out. Keith jumped out of his seat, sprinted all the way across the cafeteria, yelling, run for your lives, pulled down the fire alarm and just started like yelling at everyone to leave. And we all got up and we left. The whole school cleared out because a light bulb burned out. That was a normal day for Keith. He was then suspended, of course. Uh, I remember another time when he got into a fight with a kid who was about six foot two. Keith ran around behind him, grabbed the back of his shirt, pulled it over his head, and he just worked that poor kid until the kid fell over and started jumping and cheering. Like, again, that was a normal day for Keith. Senior year of high school, Keith and I both, we didn't really know each other, but we had a circumstance happen where, a chi- where one of the kids lost their life. It shook Keith. Keith started asking some spiritual questions. And Keith had a moment where he met Jesus Christ and he understood what happened when Jesus died on the cross for him. And it completely and radically transformed and changed Keith at the end of his high school career. He ended up going to the same undergrad college that I went to. So we spent a year together talking about the Bible. And he grew, and then he went to another college. Then he went to seminary. And now Keith travels the country and goes from college campus to college campus sharing the gospel in an open-air fashion to students around the country. He's been doing that for decades now. So I got to share that story with the lady I was sitting beside at the 25-year reunion. He's not the guy you knew 25 years ago. Because God is still working today God is still transforming lives today. Keith was different because he ran into Jesus and understood the cross. Going back several thousand years, there was a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. And in Daniel chapter four, we're kind of introduced to kind of the way he thinks and the way he views himself. It says in chapter four, verse 29, as the king, Nebuchadnezzar, was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my power for the glory of my majesty? These were the words that came out of Nebuchadnezzar's mouth. As you look at this statement, a couple of things probably stick out. One, he saw himself as the builder, maker, and creator of all the things he could see. He believed that all of it existed because of him and all of it existed for him. He didn't give any of his glory to another. In fact, he expected everyone to glorify and to praise him for the things that he has made, for the accomplishments that he had done. It's easy when we see someone like Nebuchadnezzar, or maybe you have a Keith somewhere in your past. It's easy to think that these types of people with this level of bravado and arrogance and self-centeredness and this glory-seeking, that they deserve to be rejected by God, that he deserves whatever punishment he gets, that there's no hope, for someone like this. Today we're gonna learn, no one, no one is too far gone. There's no one too far outside that can't be brought into the family of God. Someone doesn't have to clean themselves up first before God's willing to reach out to them and save them and transform them. Maybe there's someone in your life that you've written off. I just want you to know, today we're gonna learn that maybe God's not done writing their story Maybe you feel like God's written you off. Maybe God's not done writing your story. As you hear those words of Nebuchadnezzar, you might also be thinking, well, Nebuchadnezzar is nothing like me. I would never say something like that. That's probably true. But at the same time, pride comes from lots of places. Nebuchadnezzar conquered the known world. But for us, sometimes it comes from our smaller accomplishments, It comes from the family name that we have. It might come from the career path that we've chosen and found success in. It might come from the way people look at us or talk about us. It might come from how many likes we get on social media. It might come from the car that we drive, the stuff that we have, the home that we have, the neighborhood we live in, the school that maybe we went to or we sent our children to. Pride comes in many different forms. Pride also comes uh, in lots of different ways when it comes to the way we view the world. Sometimes pride looks like comparison. I look at another, maybe what they've done versus what I've done. Maybe the way they're designed, built, and how they think versus me, and I look at myself and think more highly of myself than the other person. Sometimes it looks like being judgmental. Sometimes it might look like being the first one to talk. Being prideful might look like someone who's slow to listen, It might look like always assuming that you're right and the other person's wrong, that every situation you walk into will be better because you're there. You think you always have something to contribute and perhaps you don't take the time to learn from the people around you. Pride can also take the form of viewing ourselves too highly in our relationship with God. It can also come when we view ourselves too lowly in our relationship with God. When God says out loud, I love you so much that I sent my son to die for you, and then you continue to question the love of God, sometimes that's a form of pride. My perception of myself means more than God's perception of me. That's putting your words and your point of view above God's. When God says, you're deeply loved, and you say, I'm unlovable, that's actually an interesting form of pride that we also struggle with. It's putting God first, putting God's words first perspective and point of view above ours. So today, I think we're gonna learn that each of us are a little bit more like Nebuchadnezzar than perhaps we realized. So let's take some time and look at Nebuchadnezzar. How did he get this way? And where does God show up in all of this? So let's start by setting the stage. Here's a map of ancient Middle East, and you have the nation and the empire of Assyria has pretty much taken over. Like, they're the big dogs. Everyone answers to Assyria. And the capital of Assyria is Nineveh. Perhaps you remember from the Old Testament, the city of Nineveh. That's where God sent Jonah via a big fish to warn Nineveh. And the Bible says they actually repented. But at this point, Assyria is starting to wane. It's starting to fade. And there's this new upstart, Babylon. And this guy named nebo which is the dad of Nebuchadnezzar, you don't have to remember those names. But they start to rise up. And in 612 BC, Nineveh falls. Babylon defeats Nineveh, and it falls. So what happens is they start to move their capital farther west. It goes to a place called Harran, and then it goes to a place called Kamesh, Karmesh. So they end up in Karkamesh. And there's this, on the next slide, we see there's a new setup as the world is starting to change. Now... You have Babylon is rising and growing and increasing in strength. There's this upstart military general named Nebuchadnezzar and he's marching on Carchemish. At the same time, you've got this other player, Egypt, down to the south. Egypt has no interest in having Babylon starting to take over things. So Egypt begins to march north towards Carchemish so that Assyria and Egypt will battle against Nebuchadnezzar. Side note, Side story, as Egypt is marching north, there's this little place called Judah, God's people in Judah. They have a king named Josiah, the great reformer king. We're actually gonna talk about him in a couple weeks. And Josiah decides he's gonna sneak over and take out Egypt as they march north towards Carchemish. It doesn't go as planned. He tries to use the strategic positioning of the Valley of Megiddo, if you're an Old Testament person, Armageddon, Megiddo, there's some connection there. So he tries to like put them in a position where he's gonna beat them in this valley. So Josiah shows up with the armies of Judah and they get wiped out. Josiah dies, Judah gets beat. Judah becomes a vassal state to Nebuchadne- to Egypt and the Pharaoh. They put in a puppet king. Egypt is now in control of Judah. And then Egypt keeps marching north. So Egypt then makes it to Carchemish. Now you've got Assyria and Egypt fighting Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar crushes Assyria. And after crushing Assyria, he begins to chase Egypt down back south, pushing them back into their homeland. And on the way down, he starts taking over the territories that Egypt had taken over. What does that include? Judah. So now Babylon takes over Judah. Judah now answers to Babylon and he chases Egypt all the way down south. As Babylon conquers Judah, Nebuchadnezzar does something that has incredible significance. In chapter one of Daniel, it says this, Nebuchadnezzar takes vessels of the house of God and brought them to the land of Shinar, which is where Babylon is, to the house of his God. In the process of claiming Judah as his own, Nebuchadnezzar goes in and steals from the temple of God. He takes God's things. It's a direct assault on Yahweh himself. Like we're told about what he does in the temple before we're told that he exiles some of the people of God. There's almost like a biggest, bigger concern about the fact that he did this onslaught on the temple of God than the people of God. So with incredible arrogance, he thinks he and his God is more powerful powerful than Yahweh, the God of all things. So then he takes these vessels from the temple and he takes some Israelites back to Babylon. You might know some of them, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we'll come back to them. At this point, Nebuchadnezzar receives word that his father, Nebuchadnezzar, has died. So Nebuchadnezzar, who's this incredible military guy, he's conquering nations, he's conquering cities. He finds out that he's now king, and he's called back to Babylon. So now instead of going all the way down into Egypt, he returns to Babylon to receive the crown. So we're starting to learn some things about Nebuchadnezzar. He's brilliant in terms of his military prowess, and now he's king. If you look at this next map, you'll see how much he had taken over Babylon runs everything. At this point, Babylon is in control. As a military leader, he's expanded the kingdom. And as king, he rules over almost all of the known world. As the king, he rules for 43 years, which is the longest of any of the kings for this particular Babylonian empire. There is likely no honest-to-goodness comparison to Nebuchadnezzar in our day and age. Like there's no one on planet Earth right now that runs and rules all by himself, all of the modern world. The US is a democracy and we don't run the whole world. This guy did. That was the power that he wielded while he was alive on planet Earth. So not only was he a military genius, not only was he a powerful, long-ruling king, he also had this ability to make beautiful things. So when it comes to the city of Babylon itself, It was 55 miles in diameter. This next picture shows you some of the beauty of the city. There's a blue gate that you'll see. Hopefully you can see it from your seat. But he rebuilt the gates of the city using cedar and then putting bronze all over it, making it blue. Like it was a gorgeous thing to walk into the city of Babylon. There were a series of walls that protected Babylon from enemies. And when they excavated ancient Babylon, the first series of walls were 22 feet thick. Then there's a little gap, and then there was another wall that was 25 feet thick. Then there's a little gap, and there was another wall that was 12 feet thick. There were three layers of walls. So maybe you're attacking Babylon. You bust through that first, that first wall. I don't know how you do it, but you bust through the first wall. What happens? Now you're stuck between two humongous walls. Archers come out, you're dead, Like, he thought through it. It was well done. Also, in this city, in the next picture, you're going to see this river that runs through. It's the Euphrates. So they built the city on this river, which allowed them to have access to water and fish and all these incredible things. They built walkways over top of the Euphrates. It was so well developed. Sidebar, when Babylon is defeated, it's because of this river. This river that provided life for the city was the way that the enemy snuck in. King Cyrus and Persia defeat Babylon because of the Euphrates, a story for another time. But in addition to this, in the next picture, you're gonna see this ziggurat. This is what a ziggurat is. It was 300 feet high. You could see it from miles around as you would approach Babylon. I mean, this was Nebuchadnezzar's brainchild. He made this thing happen. At the top, you had this temple to Marduk, which is kind of like their god. All the brick is enameled in blue to represent heaven itself. It's gorgeous. This is right beside the hanging gardens, which are one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Like it was a beautiful place to live. Many of the residents had three to four story homes. I don't know how many of you have that. Most people don't have a three to four story home, but in ancient Babylon you did. Very impressive, it was a great place to live. So why would we spend this time looking at Nebuchadnezzar? Because all of these things contributed to how he viewed himself. His heart, his perspective, were impacted by his accomplishments, his status, his rule, and his power. And the way he responded to this success, the way he responded to his status, was not thankfulness. It was arrogance. It was not worship. It was pride. It was not glorifying God or thanking God. It was expecting glory to himself. That's how he responded to his success. So Nebuchadnezzar had an inflated view of himself. If you've spent time in the Old Testament and have ever happened to spend time in Habakkuk, it's a prophet that talks about, before Nebuchadnezzar, that God himself is going to raise up the Babylonians. God's gonna raise up the Babylonians. So when Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon take power, it's because God ordained it to be so. Not because Nebuchadnezzar is the greatest military leader is because God chose to do it. So it was all because of God. God said it before it happened and it still was true. So no one in this room, including me, has ever conquered another nation. No one in this room is the king over the known world. But I do believe we can relate. To some of the things that Nebuchadnezzar was struggling with. Pride ultimately comes from a couple things. One, it comes from an incorrect view of God and our relationship to God. It comes from an incorrect view of really understanding who God is and how that relationship with God has been formed. We're going to come back to that. Pride also comes from having an overinflated view of ourselves, seeing ourselves as bigger than we should, or an undervalued view of others. We struggle with these things. Nebuchadnezzar struggled with these things. And what does this look like in our day-to-day life? It could look like a lot of things. It could be simple little thoughts that go through our mind like, I did that. I deserve credit for that. Nice job, me. Sometimes we'll even vocalize, and you'll see athletes do this, but vocalize all glory to God, And Lord willing, our mind, our mouth and our heart are all saying the same thing. But I also know it's easy sometimes to vocally give God praise and inward thinking, yeah, that was really me that did that. I deserve that credit. There's also a tendency in us when we look at our career or we look at our stuff, we look at where we live, it's so hard not to look at those things and think, that was my contribution. These calluses on my hands mean that I get credit for that. I'm the one that worked hard, instead of saying, God gave me that. God worked in me and through me so that that could be something that I get to enjoy in this life. It's just so easy for us to look at it the wrong way. In our relationships with others, it's so easy to walk into a relationship and have some level of comparison, judgment, viewing that our way is the best way, belittling the people around us, even if it's just in our mind how often those thoughts just kind of run through your heart or run through your mind. Do you ever choose to not interact with people who don't live like you, who don't think like you, who don't vote like you? Are you slow to ever admit that you are wrong sometimes? Do you ever say, I'm sorry, and truly mean it? Do you ever grieve over your sin against God or grieve against your sin against others? Do you ever find yourself dismissing the people around you or just not taking their thoughts or maybe their feelings as seriously as you should? In all those examples, and they could keep going, those are little glimpses of how our hearts still struggle with pride. We may not look like Nebuchadnezzar, but we share in the same struggle and sin as Nebuchadnezzar. I do, you do, we all do. But here, when it comes to the story of Nebuchadnezzar, things start to change, things start to transition. So he's conquered the world, but now God's going to shake the world of Nebuchadnezzar. So we go back to the book of Daniel and we're gonna spend most of our time there. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and it rattles him. So he calls all the men of Babylon together, the the wisest of men and his magicians and says, tell me what I dreamed and then interpret the dream for me. None of them could do it. None of them. And then this guy named Daniel from Judah can do it. And he says in chapter two, verse 28, however, speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in latter days. Even in those small choices of words, Daniel is alerting Nebuchadnezzar that there is a God in heaven and it's not you. And he's the one that's going to interpret your dream for you because you can't do it. He's introducing the power of God to Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 37, he says, you, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the power, the strength, and the glory. He lets Nebuchadnezzar right there know. He puts him on notice saying, everything you've got, your power, your success, and your status isn't from you from God. So he's continuing to help Nebuchadnezzar understand who God is and have a right relationship with God. King Nebuchadnezzar responds in verse 47, the king answered Daniel and said, surely your God is a God of gods, a Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar's starting to get it. Chapter three, we see Nebuchadnezzar is still struggling. Nebuchadnezzar builds this big statue and expects everyone to worship this statue whenever the music plays. Not worship the God who Daniel's introduced him to, but to to worship this statue that really represents Nebuchadnezzar and his majesty and all the things that he has accomplished. He says, then the herald loudly proclaimed, to you the command is given, O peoples and nations and men of every language, bow down when you hear the music play. So this command, this edict goes out to all peoples, every tribe, every tongue, every nation to worship Nebuchadnezzar. What blows me away about this verse is like the anti-Great Commission. Jesus says, go and make disciples of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And Nebuchadnezzar's saying, every tribe, tongue, and nation, worship me. This is right against the plan and intention and heart of God himself, this thing that Nebuchadnezzar is doing. So three guys stand up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they say, we're not going to bow down when the music plays. They speak directly to Nebuchadnezzar. They say, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Basically, a challenge is put forth. Nebuchadnezzar, you think you're all that. We fully trust that our God can deliver us from the power of your hand. Nebuchadnezzar takes the challenge. This furnace where he's tossing people into to die who don't worship him, he makes it seven times hotter. He takes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throws them into this furnace. The guys who throw them into the furnace, they die because of the exposure to the amount of heat that comes out of the furnace. And then King Nebuchadnezzar wants to watch them burn to death, but something else happens. We sing a song here often about this fourth person in the fire. In 324, it says, then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound, unharmed, in the fourth, looks like the son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out, come out of there. In chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar is starting to realize again the difference between him and his power and majesty and this God that these Israelites, these people from Judah are worshiping. Nebuchadnezzar says, King Nebuchadnezzar to the nations and peoples of every language who live on the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders, his kingdom and eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. So here we see him saying the right things. But the question remains. Has Nebuchadnezzar experienced a transformed heart? Does he really get it? Or in the moment, is he just saying what he thinks he needs to say? He is a politician, right? So God goes from shaking Nebuchadnezzar's world to literally turning it upside down. So even though he's watched God interpret dreams, even though he's watched him protect three people from the fire and even show up to be with them in the fire, He continues to question, he continues to push. We go back to the verse that we started with. In 429, after he's experienced all these things, he's walking on the roof of his royal palace and says, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you." Even as he's speaking those words, a voice comes from heaven and shuts it down. Your authority has been removed. The thing that you thought you built, the thing that you thought existed for your glory, for your sake, it's gone. Your authority is taken. You are no longer king, and he is driven out into the field as an animal. He sleeps outside. He eats the grass of the fields. His fingernails grow like claws. He looks like a beast. He no longer can speak. He is literally turned into a beast for seven years. And he's told that this will continue until he looks at heaven and has a right understanding of who God is. Chapter four, verse 34 through 37. At the end of that time, seven years living in a field like a beast, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him. Instead of seeking to be honored, seeking to be glorified, he honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases and the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth, no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now, in comparison to the other statements he's made, there's a change here, there's a moment. Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven. I believe we're looking at a transformed heart. I don't think these are just words. He can distinguish this moment from previous moments. Now, he praises, exalts, and glorifies the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. He just got sent into the field for seven years like a beast, and he looks at God and says, That was just. That was right. You made the right decision. And those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar knows. Nebuchadnezzar has experienced it. Now he has a right understanding of who he is. Now he has a right understanding of who God is. He has a right understanding of his relationship to this God of the universe. You are the one who's just. You can do whatever you please. You are in charge. If I stand up too tall, you can humble me back down. He gets it. Will Nebuchadnezzar be in heaven? I think very likely. I think this is a statement of belief in the God of the Bible. So Nebuchadnezzar needed a moment, a big moment. And in that moment, it changed everything. He learned dependence. He learned humility. He learned the foolishness of his pride. We, we need to have a moment like that. We've been given a moment by God. And that moment is the cross. When we look at the cross, where God the Father sent God the Son to live a perfect life and then to die on the cross in our place, it's a moment there where it changes everything about our perspective. In that moment, we see God for who he is, a God who reaches down and takes over the situation. We weren't reaching out to God when Jesus was sent to us. We weren't saying, God, please help us. We were doing our own thing in our own way. God steps in and in his power and his might, in his justice and his holiness, and with incredible grace and mercy and love, he steps in and Jesus goes to the cross and dies in our place. That's the kind of God that we serve. That's the right perspective on him, the one who made all things and we broke all things. He steps up and says, I will save you. I will make a way. When it comes to our perspective of ourselves. The cross does the same thing. When we look at the cross, we don't look at the cross and think, wow, I am so glad I got to help Jesus in that moment. I'm so glad I got to contribute in that moment. At the cross, we're reminded, we do not contribute to our salvation. There's nothing that I did to help Jesus on that cross. The only contribution that you make and I make is my sin held him on that cross. He bore the weight and the punishment of my sin on that cross. That's the contribution we make. That gives us a right perspective of ourselves. We're completely dependent, humble. We stand before him, needy, with open hands. There's nothing we have to give. All we can do is to receive. So in that moment, having that right understanding of ourselves, we say out loud, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. There's no part in us that should think that we helped in our salvation. Jesus saves. and I am who I am because of him, and because of what I am. And he reached down and he saved me. And in the same way, we don't save ourselves. We also don't transform ourselves. We say Jesus transforms. And this also points us to the cross. In Romans chapter seven, Paul is talking about what it feels like to try to live life out of our flesh without relying upon the spirit of God. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. That's true of us as well. Every day we wake up and try to do it on our own, we have to realize there's nothing good that comes from me, my flesh. But then in Romans chapter eight, when we live life filled with the spirit of God, living according to the word of God, there's this incredible victorious life where amazing things happen, where we understand his love and we're changed and transformed by that love. And in those moments, we don't look at ourselves and see the beautiful things in our life and say, it's because of me, we say, it's because of him. Because without him, I am nothing. Without him, I can do nothing. And then also move so far as to change the way we view one another. When we view ourselves as people who've simply received and been given grace and love, we're so much more quick to then give that grace and love to others. Comparison just falls away. Being judgmental makes no sense. I am who I am because of him. You are who you are because of him. So when you look at the people around you in your family, your friends, and in this church, and the people where you work and the neighborhood that you live, you should be people, I should be a person that's deeply humbled by the reality of this cross. And we quickly give grace, we quickly give mercy, we quickly give love. The cross kills pride. The cross kills kills pride. The cross produces humble children that serve Jesus as king. God can transform anyone. God can transform the most prideful of hearts, even yours and mine. Let's thank him together. Father, what a fun story to learn from Nebuchadnezzar. And at the same time, may this story resonate with us and where we are. Our incredible recognition of where we need to grow deeper with you We need your transforming power in our hearts, our hearts that still lean towards pride and arrogance and self-centeredness. Jesus, may our eyes be focused on your cross. May we realize what that says about you, what that says about us and our relationships to others. May we be deeply loved by you, understand, comprehend, and feel that incredible love that you have for us and quickly give it to others even in this time, Jesus, where we celebrate baptism and the fact that lives here have been saved and they're being transformed. May we celebrate together and enjoy this time. May it be a time of praising and adoring you. In Christ's name, amen. For more information, visit us at biblecenterchurch.com and give us a follow on all platforms at Bible Center.